Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan is going to give an overview of Genesis chapters 43 through 45, with a specific interest in the theme of death and resurrection. Do be sure to check out that link to our YouTube channel in the show notes. Today we released a psalm chant video for Psalm 2 that we hope you will find helpful and we invite you to sing along with us. We want to thank you so much for listening and we hope that you enjoy this episode. And here is James Jordan giving an overview of Genesis chapters 43 through 45. This section analyzed this way covers chapters 43 to 45. Way back in your notes somewhere you have a chiastic structure for the whole Joseph narrative, which is a little bit different because it covers the entire thing. But this is a smaller melody line within that larger one, and it falls out very obviously. We leave the land of Canaan, we go to Egypt, we start to come back, we're stopped. That's the middle of it. We go back to Egypt, and then we go back to Canaan. Just in terms of the narrative itself, it's obvious that we're going somewhere and coming back, and that's almost trivial. Naturally, you could say you have a chiastic structure any time you go from one place to another and then come back. But the question is, is there more to it? There really is. This story goes down to the point where the brothers say, whoever stole this stuff will be punished and we'll all be your slaves. And in a sense, that's the center of the narrative looked at this way. It's where they really begin to volunteer to die. They accept the death that is coming upon them since they accept their fate. And from that point, we begin to have resurrection for them. And the story begins again with the brothers going down, that we may live and not die in verse 8, and then we get to the end of the narrative, death and resurrection come up again at the climax of it. At the end it says, they told Jacob, Joseph is still alive, indeed he is ruler of all the land of Egypt, and his heart failed, and he did not believe them. Now that's death. His heart failed. But when they spoke to him all of Joseph's words that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him down, their father Jacob's spirit came to life. So we saw it in the previous narrative, the threat of death and then the offer of life. If you obey Elohim, you will live and not die. Then that theme is brought even more here. Joseph himself had gone through several death and resurrection experiences, being cast in the pit, being brought out, being cast in prison, being brought out. Now the entire clan goes through these things, and that's how salvation comes. I mean, that's how our salvation comes death and resurrection. In order for a person to be saved, he needs to accept the fact that he deserves to die. That's what Cain wouldn't do. He just brought some fruits and vegetables as a gift to God, as a bribe, and that's what all paganism is. You bring gifts to your God as a bribe. Do this for me, and I'll bring you more gifts. But in the Bible, God accepts our gifts, but only when we first of all admit that we deserve to die by bringing a sacrifice that's killed. And that's what Abel did. He killed his sacrifice and said, I deserve to die. Please accept this substitute on my behalf. That's what has to happen. Then you can come to life again. And then your gifts and offerings are accepted. So 
this story where these brothers accept the judgment that comes upon them, they accept that they deserve to die, is at the center of it. And, of course, Judah's offer to die as a spokesman to say, I will be Benjamin's surety, I offer to die, and then saying it again to Joseph, saying, let me stay and be your slave instead of Benjamin. These are all the things that are necessary for salvation. And so here we are at the center narrative, then, the moving through the real center of the story, how the brothers are saved. So I think maybe the best thing for us to do is to read this over, see the whole story, and then when I get back from being away, see, I'll have a chiasm, I'll go away, I'll come back. The question is, will a whole series of things happen on my way to St. Louis and then reverse all those things on the way back? Probably not, see. But here it does. Let's just read it, see what happens, and just follow this structure here and you can watch it move in. Maybe we'll do some comparisons as we go. First of all, the sons were sent by Jacob, that they may live and not die. That's in 43, 1 to 10. And the famine was heavy in the land, and it came to pass, when they had finished eating the rations that they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Return, buy us some food rations. But Jehuda said to him, saying, The man warned us, yes, warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you wish to send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you some food rations. But if you do not wish to send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so ill with me by telling the man that you have another brother? And they said, The man asked. He asked about us and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? So we told him, according to these words, How could we know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Jehuda said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, that we may arise and go, that we may live and not die. So we, so you, so our little ones, not die. I will act as his pledge. At my hand you may seek him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him in your presence, I will be liable for sin against you all the days to come. In other words, you can put me to death, or you can... Cast me out of the covenant, whatever you want to do, is what this implies. Indeed, had we not lingered, we would indeed have come back twice already. So, that's where they're sent. Now, they come back at the end of the narrative, of course. Then in verses 11 to 15a, gifts are sent to Joseph. Israel, their father, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the produce of the land in your vessels and bring them down to the man as a gift. A little balsam, a little honey, balm, and laudanum. And here we'll stop because whenever you see a list, you should count. One, balsam. Two, honey. Three, balm. Four, and laudanum. Five, pistachio nuts. And six, almonds. And seven, silver. Two times over in your hand. So we've got a list of seven things. And the silver that was returned in the mouth of your packs, returned in your hand, perhaps it was an oversight. And as for your brother, take him and return to the man. And may God shadow the Almighty God, the God who has all power, give you mercy before the man, so that he releases your other brother to you, and Benjamin as well. And as for me, if I must be bereaved, I must be bereaved. So Jacob is accepting death here. There's nothing to be done about it. This is what he didn't want to have happen. This is another form of death. He says, you will bring my gray hairs down in death if Benjamin leaves. Well, okay, now he accepts death. 
The men took this gift, silver twice over, they took in their hand, and Benjamin as well, and they arose and went down to Egypt. Now, at the other end of the narrative, we'll see that Joseph sends a bunch of gifts back to Jacob. So what matches gifts being sent down to Joseph is going to be matched by Joseph sending a whole bunch of extra stuff to Jacob as an assurance that he can come. So, time permitting, we'll get to that as we just read today. Well, now the brothers are brought in, and that will be matched by the brothers being sent back out by Pharaoh at the end of the narrative. There will be some similarities there. They stood in Joseph's presence, and Joseph saw Benjamin was with them. So he sees that they have done what he required, and he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house, and slaughter some slaughter animals, and prepare them, for it is with me that these men shall eat at noon. And the man did as Joseph had said, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now, Joseph intends for them to have a nice communion meal. It won't be a complete communion meal, because Joseph will not sit with them. They're still estranged from God, and Joseph and all these God-fearing Egyptians are friends of God, and so they'll sit on different tables until the brothers have actually repented. But some degree of fellowship is implied, but the brothers misinterpret this. Verse 18, there's fear and trembling. And this will be matched by an embrace at the other end of the story, where they are terrified and estranged now. They'll be embraced by Joseph as we move back out of the story. The men were frightened that they had been brought into Joseph's house and said, It's because of the silver that was returned in our packs before that we had been brought here. To roll it upon us and fall upon us and take us into servitude along with our donkeys. In other words, they're bringing us into the house in order to capture us and punish us. Now they are reassured. They come close to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke to him in the entrance of the house. And they said, Please, my lord... And the servant's going to reassure them. That'll be matched by Joseph reassuring him at the end of the story, where Joseph himself says, Don't worry, I'm Joseph. Hey, and don't need to be afraid. God worked all this out for his purposes. Verse 20 here, they said, Please, my Lord, we came down. We came down before to buy food rations. But it came to pass when we came to the night camp and opened our packs. There was each man's silver in the mouth of his pack. Our silver, its precise weight. But here we have returned it in our hand. So we're bringing it back now. And other silver as well we have brought down in our hand to buy food. We don't know who put back our silver in our packs. And the steward said, It's well with you, don't be afraid. So here is this Gentile, God-fearing Egyptian, who has more understanding and more faith than they do. Your God, the God of your father, placed a treasure in your packs for you. Your silver has come into me. He says, I receive your silver. In other words, we're receiving it. You don't need to be afraid. And he brought Simeon out to them. So this ransoms Simeon. And that's an assurance to them that they have good intentions. So the steward reassures them. And then they draw near to Joseph. And on this occasion, they bow down to him. As we move back out, Joseph will say, come near to me. And let me tell you that I'm Joseph. Verses 24 to 26. Then the man had the men come into Joseph's house and gave them water so that they might wash their feet. And gave them fodder for their donkeys. And they prepared the gift until Joseph came back at noon. In other words, they had brought these dates and pistachios and all this. And they laid it out. See, that's how you do it. You lay out a gift. So they they prepared it. They got everything sorted out into nice little baskets and said... Here is all the stuff that our father sent for you. 
They understood that they were going to eat bread there. And bread, of course, is a significant word throughout all this. Grain is what they came down for, and now they're going to eat bread. They're actually going to eat some meat as well, but bread is the cover term that's used here. And when Joseph came into the house, they brought him the gift that was in their hand into the house and bowed down to him to the ground. Another fulfillment of the dreams. And then he asks about their father, and we'll see him do that again as we move back out of the story. He asked after their welfare and said, Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And in homage, they bowed low. He lifted up his eyes and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God show you favor, my son. Joseph says that to Benjamin. And then Joseph weeps. In haste, for his feelings were so kindled toward his brother that he had to weep, Joseph entered a chamber and wept there. Then we come to the feast. Then he washed his face and came out. He restrained himself and said, Serve bread. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who were eating with him by themselves. For Egyptians will not eat bread with Hebrews, for that is an abomination for Egyptians. Basically, Joseph is in between them. This is like a formal meal. You've been in the military, you know what it's like. The commander sits at his table, while the president of the feast, the vice president of the feast, sits at a particular table. And the commander is at one place, and the men are organizing their companies at various tables in the room. And that's how this is. The Hebrews are over here, the Egyptians are over here, and Joseph is right here. And he is presiding over the meal. He is the president of the feast. Verse 33, And they were seated in his presence, the firstborn according to his rank as firstborn, and the youngest according to his rank as youngest. And the men stared at each other in astonishment over it. So that's the feast, and that's another thing that begins to make them nervous. And then we find that Benjamin is favored here. He had courses taken to them from his presence. All the food is on Joseph's table, and he is giving it out to these people. And Benjamin's course was five times greater than all their courses. And they drank and became drunk with him, is the way this translates. They had a good time. This is, of course, a test, another test. He's favoring Benjamin, and then he's going to threaten Benjamin. And how will they respond to that? Will they let Benjamin suffer or not? He puts Benjamin in the same position he had been in. Joseph had been favored and given extra special stuff, and the brothers hated him for it and wanted him dead. Now, Benjamin is being given all the extra special stuff, and he's also the son of Rachel. Are they going to hate him and go ahead and let him die, or will something different happen this time? As we move back out in chapter 44, 16 and 17 is where we find that Benjamin is threatened, and then corresponding to the feast is the passage where Judah makes his offer. And then we'll find Joseph weeps, and he asks about the father, and the brothers draw near. All these are the reverse of the things we just looked at. And now we come to the center of the story, chapter 44, 1 to 15. And we start with the goblet, as it's translated here, being sent forth. And it's useful to translate goblet. It's a different word in Hebrew than the word cup. Of course, it is a cup, and so we want to make associations with cups in general. But the actual term is a bit more specific, a special cup. 
So first of all, the goblet is sent, and then at the end of this section, the goblet will return. He commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's packs with food as much as they are able to carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his pack. And my goblet, the silver goblet, put in the mouth of the youngest's pack, along with the silver for his rations. And he did according to Joseph's word, which he had spoken. Then they depart. At the light of daybreak, the men were set off, they and their donkeys. And now they're going to be charged with being thieves. And they were just outside the city. They had not yet gone far. When Joseph said to the steward of his house, Up, pursue the men. And when you have caught up with them, say to them, Why have you paid back ill for good? Is not this the goblet? Is not this the one that my Lord drinks from? And he also divines, yes, divines with it. You have wrought ill in what you have done. And when he caught up with them, he spoke those words to them. And we'll have to ask about this divining business when we get there. And now we come to the center where they give an oath and the oath is accepted. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Heaven forbid. You know, that's not actually the English idiom. It's heaven forfend. Heaven bear it off for our servants to do such a thing. Here, the silver that we have found in the mouth of our packs, we return to you from the land of Canaan. How could we steal silver or gold from the house of your Lord? He with whom it is found among your servants, he shall die. And we will also become my Lord's servants. And then this oath is accepted, and the steward said, Now as well, according to your words, so be it. He with whom it is found shall become my servant, but you will be clear. So he modifies the oath that they take, but he tells them what it's going to be. Whoever is guilty will become a servant of the steward of Joseph, seems to be the meaning. I haven't looked at this in all the commentaries yet, of course, and maybe this somehow implies Joseph's servant, but at first reading... It appears that he's not going to be a high-class servant in the household. He's going to be a servant of servants, going to be underneath the other servants. And that's a form of death, equivalent to dying. So they make an oath and promise to die and become slaves, and the oath is accepted. He says, okay, all right, that's how it's going to be. And now the theft is discovered. It's not actually a theft, of course, but might as well be. That's the point. With haste, each man let down his pack to the ground. Each man opened his pack. And when he searched, with the eldest he started, and with the youngest he finished. So the steward shows that he knows who's who as well. And the goblet was found in Benjamin's pack. Of course, psychologically, this just adds tension. Uh, as they spiral in, those brothers think, no, please, not Benjamin. We can't have just said Benjamin is going to stay down here as a slave. And of course, he gets closer and closer and closer. And finally, uh, knife in the heart, it turns out that it was Benjamin. It's in his pack. And of course, what this shows is here, this crummy, crown pence Benjamin, this 16-year-old kid, spoiled rotten by his daddy, and he has stolen this cup. That's what the brothers think. No, actually, this time, they don't take advantage of Benjamin. They have begun to think differently. They rent their clothes. And now they return, moving back down to Egypt now. Each man loaded up his donkey, and they return to the city. And now the goblet itself is brought back. 
Judah and the brothers came into Joseph's house. He was still there. But I don't know why it says that. You come across something like that, so what? He was still there. Where else would he be? So when you come across something bizarre like that in the text, it seems completely pointless. That's the thing you have to look at. So I don't know why it says that. Uh huh. The first verse tells us that money was put back in stacks just like the first time. Yeah. Yet in this inspection, that's mystified me. They focus on the cup, but why didn't they say, my money's in my sack, but the cup isn't there? In other words, they should have been surprised that the money was there. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll have to see if anybody takes that up. Here is now this double amount of silver is put back in the sacks. Why aren't they horrified to find that out as well? I think we can assume that they probably were, and the narrative is just condensed, focusing on the cup itself, and that just adds to the tension. Oh, no, the silver's back this time. What's going on? But also the cup itself, which, now this is pretty scary. But I imagine that other people have wrestled with that, and I'll try to, when we get there, search it out. They're just curious. Generally, amongst them, since they know, well, my money was back in my sack, but I didn't do it. Yeah. By the time they get to the cup and Benjamin's sack, I wonder if they're saying something's going on, and they're not really thinking that Benjamin's guilty of taking it. That's a good point. In other words, they know that they didn't put the money back in their sacks, and so they can easily deduce that Benjamin didn't take the silver cup either. So, maybe. <laughs> I would think they would have to know that a trick's being pulled on them. It's interesting. Try to remind me of that. If I forget to say anything about it at the time, I'll make sure I check it up. Oh, Joseph said to them, What kind of deed have you done? This verse 15. Do you not know that a man like me can divine? Yes, divine. You should know that by now. Somehow or other, I knew who was the oldest and who was the youngest and everybody in between. And I think we have to understand this is a word that would be used in pagan religion for divination, but it's being used here to mean Joseph is a prophet. If he'd used the word prophet, it would have given too much away, so he uses this word. And of course, he's speaking in Egyptian, and it's going from Egyptian into Hebrew, so, well, we'll have to explore this divination business when we get to it. There's probably a good deal that should be said about it. And Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? By what can we show ourselves innocent? God has found out your servant's crime. Here we are, servants of my Lord, so we, so the one in whose hand the goblet was found. We're all in your hand. We're all offering to be slaves. But he said, heaven forfend that I should do this. Heaven prevent is the meaning of that Hebrew idiom, and heaven forbid is a corruption of it. Heaven forfend, heaven prevent that I should do this. I'm not sure what the Hebrew is underneath that. I'm sure it's not this. May it not be that I should do this. The man in whose hand the goblet was found, he shall become my servant, but you go up in peace to your father. So Benjamin is now threatened, and now what are they going to do about it? In terms of Bob's question, if they have kind of figured out that they know they didn't put the silver back in their sacks, they can figure out they didn't put the cup back in, they know that this Egyptian man seems to have miraculous powers of divination, so he must have done it, and he must have done it knowing what it would mean. That may be the right answer, that, okay, this guy with his miraculous powers has 
set up Benjamin? How would he know to set up Benjamin? How would he know to do this kind of thing? Maybe that's the answer. So they're focusing their attention not so much on some accident, but on an awareness that Joseph knows more than he should know. And that God is using him to spy them out. I think they understand the parallels. I just see in the connection that they've become convinced already that Joseph and his household know the true God. Yeah. And if the providence of God is such that you're going to reap what you sow, then they probably perceive a pattern that through these agents here, God is doing something. Yeah. And that possibly is a connection there. Yeah, I think that's probably correct. They know that Joseph and his household are God-fearing Gentiles, that they seem to have some type of inside track with information from God, and God is doing things to them. And, of course, their conscience has been telling them for a year what it was. So this is all brought this up so it can be dealt with. We have to kill it so it can come to life again. It's mortification of sins, what we call it, put to death the deeds of the flesh. There needs to be a death before there can be a resurrection. Now we get... In a sense, the center of the entire Joseph narrative where Judah makes his offer and offers to be a substitute for Benjamin. And this is, of course, a revelation of the Messiah by implication, one who is willing to die for others. And it goes even beyond what Joseph himself, the revelation through Joseph. Joseph dies and comes to life again and is able to save others. And that shows us something about Jesus. But Joseph didn't volunteer to die for anybody. Judah volunteers to go through death for the sake of his brothers. And that's an even stronger revelation in some ways of what is necessary for salvation. And it's when he does that that everything changes. So we'll just read this over. It's a very long statement and we'll examine it when we get to it. But in 44.18, here is what Yehuda says. And Yehuda came closer to him and said, Please, my Lord. Pray, let your servant speak a word in the ears of my Lord. And do not let your anger flare up against your slave, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Do you have a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a young child of his old age, whose brother is dead, so that he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. And you said to your slaves, Bring him down to me, I wish to set my eyes upon him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. Were he to leave his father, he would die. Here's that death theme again. Everybody dies. But you said to your servants, if your youngest brother does not come down with you, you shall not see my face again. And now it came to pass when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him my Lord's words. And our father said, return, buy us some food rations. And we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is not with us, then we will not go down. For we cannot see the man's face if our youngest brother is not with us. And now your servant, my father, said to us, You yourselves know that my wife bore two to me. One went away from me, and I said, For certain he is torn, torn to pieces, and I have not seen him again thus far. Now should you take away this one as well from my face, should harm befall him, you will bring my gray hair in ill fortune to Sheol. And now, when I come back to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, with whose life his own life is bound up, it shall come to pass that when he sees that the lad is no more, he will die. And your servant will have brought down the gray hair of your servant, our father, 
in grief to Sheol. In other words, I will have killed my own father by failing to bring him back. For your servant pledged himself for the land to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, I will be culpable for sin against my father all the days. So now, pray let your servant stay instead of the land as servant to my Lord. But let the land go up with his brothers. For how can I go up to my father when the land is not with me? Then I would see the ill fortune that would come upon my father. So that's the climax of it where Judah offers to go into death as a substitute for Benjamin. And I remind you of something we just read. Yes, he's going to be a servant. And what Joseph said was, Benjamin is going to be my slave. And Judah is saying, let me be a slave instead. But remember where this started was, the brothers said, whoever has this silver cup will die. And so becoming a servant is equivalent to dying. And so when Judah says, let me be a servant in the place of Benjamin, he's essentially saying, let me die in the place of Benjamin. And be cut off from the promised land and cut off from the people of God in this strange place. These are all forms of death, of course, as throughout this entire Joseph narrative. Well, now Joseph weeps again. See, this? if you look at your structure here, these are all moving back out. Joseph could not restrain himself in the presence of all who were stationed around him, and he called out, Everybody out! Have everybody leave me. So no one stood in attendance upon him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he put forth his voice in weeping, and the Egyptians heard, Pharaoh's household heard. We kind of get this theme in the first part of the narrative. Joseph's steward shows that he has true faith. He's a believer in the true God. He's out there to do good things for God's priestly people. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless you, I will bless. And these Egyptians are all converted. They want to bless Abraham's household, so they themselves are blessed. They are all in the covenant, in the penumbra of the covenant. They're not circumcised, of course, but they're God-fearing Gentiles. And there's a whole nation of them here. And so in the first part of the story, Joseph Stewart is there to stand for the Egyptians. In the second half, Pharaoh himself does. And Pharaoh himself is going to start showing all these good things to the priestly nation, honoring them so that the converted Gentile nation will also be honored. And Pharaoh's household hears it. That's interesting because it tells you that all of these things are going on in some part of the palace complex area. I don't know where. We don't know where. We don't know exactly what dynasty this was or anything else. But Joseph's house as second in command of Egypt is close enough to where members of Pharaoh's household, that is his cabinet, his officers, can overhear what's going on. This echoing down the halls with their columns and their drawings and everything. And they hear it. They participate in this. We'll say more about that when we get to it. Well, Joseph asks about his father again, see? Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers weren't able to answer him. They were confounded in his presence. Well, once again, we're back to asking about the fathers. Then he says, draw near. Joseph said to his brothers, pray, come close to me. And they came close. He said, I am Yosef, your brother whom you sold into Egypt. So the brothers are drawing near. Then he reassures them. As we moved into this story, the steward reassured them that God was on their side and that the silver had been returned by God. Now Joseph reassures them. We are moving forward. Before, it was just this steward who gives us 
the good word. Now it's Joseph, the vice regent of Egypt, messianic figure who gives us this assurance. Moving from old to new through death. Verses 5 to 14, listen to this. But now do not be pained. Do not let upset be in your eyes that you sold me here. He knows, they know, they know, he knows. He knows, they know, he knows. And they know that he knows that they know that he knows that they know. Everybody's fully self-conscious now. For it was to save life that God sent me on before you. Now there's lots of that in the Bible, isn't there? Moses goes in the wilderness for 40 years and then he's able to bring the people out. Jesus, of course, does everything before us. So that what happens to Peter and Paul in the book of Acts is a duplication of what happens to Jesus in the book of Luke. That's the way Luke and Acts are put together. You look at the things that happen to Jesus in Luke, and then you start reading Acts, and same things happen to Peter, same things happen to Paul. We are in his steps. He goes before. So with Joseph, too. It was to save life that God sent me on before you. Life and death. Verse 6, For it is two years now that the famine has been in the midst of the land, And get ready to hear something, guys. There are still another five years. Didn't know that, did you? This is going to go on for five more years, in which there shall be no plowing nor harvest. And so God sent me on before you to make you a remnant on earth, to keep you alive as a great body of survivors. And so now, that's what the priestly nation is. They're a remnant. have to unpack that a bit, too. So now it was not you who sent me here, but Elohim. And he has made me father to Pharaoh. There's your Abrahamic covenant again. Abraham will be a father of many nations. People read that and they say, well, that means he was the father of Israel in the Old Testament times. Now he's the father of the church and many nations in the New Testament. No. He's the father of many nations in the Old Testament. He's the father of Hiram's Tyre. He's the father of Jonah's Nineveh. And he's the father of Pharaoh now. Joseph is father to Pharaoh, and therefore Abraham is. Lord of all his household, ruler of the land of Egypt, make haste. Verse 9, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Yosef, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't remain. You shall stay in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your sons and the sons of your sons, your sheep and your oxen and all that is yours. And I will sustain you there. For there are still five years of famine left. Lest you be as disinherited, you and your household, and all that is yours. Behold, your eyes see, as well as my brother Benjamin's eyes, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. See, now they can recognize him. Before, they couldn't tell who he was. But now that he's told them and he said all this stuff, they can see that he is a blood relative. They can see that he looks like Benjamin, that he is just a son of Rachel and Joseph. I mean, the physical appearance is now clear to them. And they can tell by the tone of his voice that it is the basically a somewhat older version of the same voice they used to listen to and hate so much when Joseph was 17. Verse 13, So tell my father of all the weight I carry in Egypt, all the kavod, all the glory, and of all that you have seen, and make haste and bring my father down here. And he flung himself on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. And then where we had fear and trembling at the beginning of the story as they come into Joseph's presence and they're terrified, now we have love. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after this his brothers chatted with him. 
And now the brothers are sent back, and now we also have this theme of Joseph's household. And this keeps going up through all the rest of this story. Every time something good happens to God's people, the Egyptians just rejoice. All these people are in heaven. They are converted God-fearers. Now they're sent back, and Pharaoh sends them back. The news was heard in Pharaoh's household, and they said, Joseph's brothers have come. It was good in Pharaoh's eyes and the eyes of his servants. Not just Pharaoh's converted sea, but all of the whole retinue here, the whole palace, the whole nation. They're all happy. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and go and come back to the land of Canaan and fetch your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the good things of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. And you, you have been commanded, do this. Take your wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and carry your father down and come. Let not your eyes look with regret on your household wares for the good things of all the land of Egypt, they're yours. You have to leave some stuff behind? Don't sweat it, Pharaoh says. I'll make it up to you when you get down here. And the sons of Israel did so. Yosef gave them wagons in accordance with Pharaoh's orders and gave them victuals for their journey. Well, now gifts are sent back to Jacob. Gifts were sent from Joseph, whereas at the beginning of the story, gifts were sent to Joseph. Verses 22 to 24. To all of them, each man he gave changes of clothes. Now I remind you that clothes were very expensive items in the ancient world. They were made by hand, and you didn't have very many of them. This is like giving them gold or silver. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. So he's still honoring Benjamin as his brother. And to his father he sent in like manner ten donkeys carrying good things of Egypt, and ten she-asses carrying grain and bread, and food for his father for the journey. Remember, there's a whole clan of people that's going to come down into Egypt, not just a handful. This whole sheikdom, probably several thousand people are going to be moving to Egypt into the land of Goshen. So we need a lot of food for this journey. And he sent off his brothers, and they went, and he said to them, Don't be agitated on the journey. And as I recall, what that means is don't fight with each other. And remember when this story started out way back in chapter 42, they were fighting with each other. Now all this reconciliation has taken place as a result of death and resurrection. And now we come home again and Jacob dies and comes to life again. Let's read it. We're out of time, but we'll read it anyway. They went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Yaakov, their father, Jacob. The name Jacob is used here in isolation from his family. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. Indeed, he is ruler of all the land of Egypt. And his heart failed, and he didn't believe them. This is a little death here. And when they spoke to him all of Joseph's words that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him down, their father Jacob's spirit came to life, and Israel said, Notice, you see, resurrection here. Now we get the name Israel again. He can now resume his office. Enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. And that's definitely the end of that section and the end of our time. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.